at this point, seven months into the COVID-19 pandemic, this moment probably feels like a lifetime ago. Uh, it is clear that this is still going to go on for some time. And as a result of it, we're going to have to continue with our mitigation efforts in this state. And based upon the public health concerns that Dr. Smith uh, continues to express, and in working with uh, Secretary Key, I'm announcing today that the remainder of this school year is uh, going to be uh, closed. Uh, we're not going to allow in-school in instruction, but we will continue with the alternative methods of instruction through the remainder of this school year. That was Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson speaking during one of his coronavirus response briefings on April 6th. His announcement meant that nearly 480,000 of the state's students would be distance learning for the next several weeks. Educators had to pivot at a moment's notice to virtual learning or take home packets. Then, as summer came, so did discussions about how students would return to school in August. Eventually, the state mandated public schools would have to be open to students five days a week, but could offer virtual or hybrid options for learning. So most students, like this high schooler, returned to in-person classes on August 24th. So, Chloe, tell me, uh, are you excited to be back to school? Are you nervous? What are you feeling this morning? Um, I'm a little, I'm excited to be, like, back in the flow of things, but I'm also a little nervous to see, like, how things are going to be and how things are going to be different. I know classroom setups are going to be really different. New Classroom is a special reporting series produced by KUAF 91.3 with support from the Walton Family Foundation. It explores the struggles, changes, and innovations in education during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Susanna Sytek, a reporter and producer for KUAF's local news magazine called Ozarks at Large, which airs every Monday through Friday at noon and 7 p.m., as well as at 9 a.m. on Sundays. In episode one of the new classroom, we'll listen to stories produced by Ozarks at Large staff from the first day of school on August 24th through the end of September. We start with a story that originally aired on August 25th when, not surprisingly, school teachers and staff had a wide range of reactions to reopening schools to in-person learning. Some told us about the excitement they felt about getting back in the classroom and others about the trepidation that led them to make some difficult decisions. I'll figure out exactly how to do it. Okay, I see you. Yeah. And they're like, there's kids there. And I was like, what's happening to you? Students like Isaac, who is a senior at Fayetteville High School, went back to in-person learning on Monday. It, it went all right. It was weird wearing a mask, like at all times, except the 30-minute lunch. He summed up his experience this way. Yeah, it was weird. I didn't know my lips could sweat like that. Other than that, Isaac says school felt pretty normal, albeit a bit emptier. My, uh, my last period was math and I had five people in there. He says he wanted to return to school in person to get as much of the senior high school experience as he could. With everything going on, you're not guaranteed that. And so I wanna be able to have the, some of the memories that I can get of being in school. Teachers like Rosanna Brown can relate. She says nothing beats teaching her fourth graders in person. I always call them my friends and they always ask me, are we really friends? And I said, well, that's all up to you. <laughs> Brown is a teacher at Ballman Elementary School in Fort Smith. She says she missed her students and is looking forward to getting back into the swing of things, even if the swing of things won't be anything like a normal school year. For myself, I'm not really too afraid, but I do have loved ones that I know that if I were exposed, they would be exposed. And, you know... Honestly, I just have a lot of faith <laughs> that things are going to work out the way they're supposed to. And I just feel really good about the situation. I feel like people are making the best decision for everyone to the best of their ability. Brown says she's going into the classroom with a roster of 19 students. In a normal year, she has about 28. In my specific classroom, um, I have spread my desk apart. I mean, some of them are up against the wall to wall. They're just spread apart. I've measured, I've marked spaces. I've sanitized the chairs and the desk over and over so that when the students come in on Monday, their desk is gonna be fresh, my goodness. 
The school district, meanwhile, is mandating and providing masks for students and staff. Brown also has a plexiglass shield she can set up on a student's desk if they need one-on-one help. There will be sanitizer at every door and scheduled outdoor time so students can take a mask break. Brown says she discussed all this with parents in a Zoom meeting last week. Be sure and let your children know that we can't hug because it's like the first week of school is like a hug fest. So just kind of prepare them for that and prepare them for the fact that even though they may have some anxiety about the mask, if they ever have trouble breathing, if I tell them if they just lower it below their nose and I notice and they keep doing that, we'll just go outside and have a mask break because I, th- I anticipate some anxiety being created with the mask and everything that's kind of a new thing and they'll get used to it, but until they do, we'll, we'll take sufficient breaks. So I wanted to make sure the parents knew about that. Brown says she also sees this as an opportunity to bond with parents and families for a common goal. I also feel like teachers have a unique opportunity to set some good examples on how they should go about compromising and stating their opinions. Um, I feel like that's really important and I'm um, hopeful that teachers will be respectful of each other and their different ways of feeling. For Kathy Short, that feeling was that returning to in-person learning five days a week just didn't seem safe. So that's when I just came to, you know, the conclusion and went over the figures, and I thought, you know, maybe this is the time that I need to, to retire. Short had a 38-year career in Springdale as a fifth and sixth grade teacher. I've been able to work with teachers from Russia. I've been able to, I went to the uh, rainforest with the Jason Project and uh, took a team there. Um, I've been teacher of the year. I'm, not, I'm, I'm just saying that to this because I just, it's just been such a, a wonderful experience, and it was hard for me to make this decision. Especially since just five months ago, when all of Arkansas's schools went to remote learning, Short figured she'd teach for another two years. I remember saying goodbye to my kids that day, never thinking that I would never return to the classroom. But when July rolled around, Short says she felt like the decision makers weren't looking for any input from teachers about the best ways to reopen schools come fall. There was not a lot of dialogue. There were committees on paper. There were um, suggestions. You know, there were CDC guidelines, and then those guidelines got rewritten. And I became part of um, the Arkansas for Safe Schools uh, group one of the admins, and I started listening to teachers from all over the state and what was happening, and I just, it just became pretty clear to me that we were going to be forced, and I use that word, forced, to open. Short says she thought about how difficult it would be to set up her old classroom for learning during a pandemic, and the realities of expecting students and teachers to be comfortable wearing masks for several hours at a time. This disease is so um, um, contagious that I don't know how you can put that 650 kids in a school building or even 600 in a school building at my school and be safe or at any school. Short is not the only teacher retiring or resigning because of COVID-19. In Fort Smith, out of about 2,000 full-time staff, 14 educators with direct contact with students have either retired or resigned because of coronavirus concerns. The Fayetteville School District had 13 teachers retire in May, followed by another four during the summer, which spokesman Alan Wilborn says is not quite as many as in a normal year. And when we spoke with the Rogers School's superintendent, Marlon Berry, he told us the district has also seen at least 17 retirements and resignations. And, you know, I, I have no doubt that there were a few people that when it came down to it, they, if they were close to retirement, they probably just said, you know what, this is not the environment I want to come back into. Um, but for the most part, it's been good. And we've because we have a virtual option, we've been able to help some teachers that maybe are are a little bit more health challenged to be on that line instead of uh, in the classroom. Um, So, so far it's worked out for us. We are fully staffed uh, as of today. Meanwhile, in Springdale, there have been 48 employees who have taken up the district for one year of unpaid time off with guaranteed contracts if they want to come back after that. 26 are educators and the rest are staff. We also spoke with Siloam Springs Superintendent Jody Wiggins, who says they've seen at or below their average number of resignations and retirements. 
I ha we have seen a couple just in the last few weeks, which is unusual, uh, but they were directly related to health issues and, and concerns about, uh, about COVID. So in one way, we have not seen that, but in another way, just, just in this last few weeks, I know there's been some anxiety and some decisions made uh, specific to our, our current situation. Educators are not the only ones who are retiring or choosing not to come back. Leslie Wright, the director of communications for the Bentonville School District, says they're about 20 bus drivers short going into the year. And that has an awful lot to do with the global pandemic. Um, we had several bus drivers who, um, you know, for different reasons, perhaps they couldn't wear a face mask while working. And so we certainly understand that. But we also had a number of um, transportation employees who care for their elderly parents. Normally, Wright says there are enough bus drivers to get fairly close to each student's home. But without enough time to recruit and train new drivers, the district is altering its bus routes. Unfortunately, this year, what we anticipate is neighborhood pickup and drop-off locations. That's what we're thinking, is that it's going to look more like little socially distanced groups of children being picked up in one stop. The pandemic is also impacting the district's ability to hold on to some of its educators. When we spoke with Wright earlier this month, she told us 20 teachers had resigned and another five chose to retire. It's weighed heavy on much of our staff, um, even those naturally who are returning. And we're, and we're so grateful for those who um, want to be back in the classroom and kind of put aside that trepidation because they want to be there with their students to guide them through this situation. But absolutely, we have encountered some teachers who say it's just not it's not time for me to continue. And while Kathy Short decided to be one of the teachers who will not be returning, she says she's still thinking of all the educators who are going back into the classroom. I just wish them the best and, and to be safe and uh, just to take care of the children. That's all we can do. Educators like Rosanna Brown, who says she's hoping for a few things this new school year. Well, I'm, I am hopeful that all of my students um, feel safe and secure and all their needs are met. I'm really hopeful that they, they learn at a very good pace because um, we're really going to have to dig deep after last spring. I just hope all our children are happy, <laughs> well-adjusted. And as for Isaac, the Fayetteville High School senior we met at the start of this report, he believes by the time he's used to wearing his mask, he'll be back to learning virtually. I give us a month, but yeah. why is that? I just feel like everyone being around everyone is it'll, it'll, it'll just happen. For Ozarks at large, I'm Susanna Sitek. Then following the first week of school, KUAF checked in with parents and their students to find out how those first few days went for them. I spoke with two moms. One chose in-person learning for her son. The other went with the virtual option for her daughter. After going back and forth about whether to send her son back to school in person, Yanni Lucas says she breathed a sigh of relief Wednesday afternoon. Basically, I was so fearful. I was so afraid. I cried. I dropped him off at school. And then when I picked him up at three o'clock on the first day, he was beaming from ear to ear saying, Mommy, I had the best day. And all the stress went away in that moment, you know, repeat cycle the next day. Um, but in that moment, I felt like I had done the right thing by him because that was the, the happiest, like he's happy, but that was like, that was excitement. Lucas's son is a first grader at Greenland Elementary School. Well, what do you go by? Benjamin Donna. I go by Jake. And while the first day of school went smoothly, Lucas says she would have liked to have better communication from the school district ahead of time. I know it's really hard. There's a lot of moving pieces, but it seemed like they um, did not provide enough information, even precursor information to be like, hey, coming soon, we're going to give you these steps. Um, and they ended up launching a new website five days before delayed school was supposed to start. And that caused a lot of difficulties because I was trying to download forms, find out what was going on, and even their Facebook posts weren't current. Um, so that was very difficult for me as a parent to even know what was going on. Three days before school started, Lucas was able to connect with Jake's teacher using an app, but he didn't find out where his classroom was until they got there on the first day. 
having him go back to school also made me think about it harder and think about what other people are having to go through, what other families are having to go through, what that means to the teachers, to the principals, to every single person, to the economy even. Lucas says she has to check Jake's temperature every morning before school. He has to wear a mask as soon as he gets out of the car when she drops him off, and parents aren't allowed inside the building. Teachers have also made changes in their classrooms. How are your seats? My seats. Mm-hmm. Are they spread out? Yeah, they're separate. So you're sitting far away from all your classmates? Yeah. Jake says they're also doing a lot more work on their computers. Is it all on the computer, baby, or do y'all do any writing? All on the computer. Math on the computer? Mm-hmm. Reading? Mm-hmm. Letters? Mm-hmm. What about coloring? What I've gathered, put together, is that the idea behind them learning so much on the computers in the classroom is in the event that a family member gets sick, the child gets sick, the teacher gets sick, or school closes, they can continue the same studies they were doing, so at least there's some continuity there. And instead of having students go through the building to their art and music classes, those teachers come to them. Hey Jake, do you go to music class and art class? Uh So you leave your classroom and go there? When I'm in first grade, I don't. You they don't keep only in PE. We get to go there because she can't bring the whole PE class <laughs> Lunch is a bit different too. Jake says they get to eat in their classrooms, which is something they only did once a week before the pandemic. Usually, it's um something you do over every fun Friday. Usually. They do get to go outside for recess, but Jake says the playground is broken up into multiple sections to keep students with their group. So each day they rotate to a different part of the play area. Today I was in the front one. Yesterday I was in the very back. Lucas says sending Jake back to in-person learning was not an easy decision. While part of her income comes from work she can do at home, going to her second job is a lot easier with her son being able to go to school. But there were other reasons, too. There was a lot of pressure from the family, um, and, and not in a bad way, just the idea that there are needs that I can't meet despite trying to schedule play dates or walks in the park and get his social needs met in some capacity while he was at home with me. It's not the same. Um, His favorite thing is getting to see his friends. He kept talking about all the kids, like the kids from his kindergarten class that were in his first grade class. Um, And, you know, needs that I can't meet are getting met. And as long as everyone takes the proper precautions, like wearing masks and social distancing, Lucas believes the places that are good for Jake will be able to stay open. And so that's just what we're trying to do is balance that. Do I think come October, they're probably going to close schools down again? Absolutely. And so there was the argument made also to let him go while he can. Meanwhile, about half an hour north of Greenland, mom Annie Clapper decided to have her daughter Hazel learn virtually. Was a complicated decision as it was for I don't know anyone who had an easy choice. It's not an easy choice. I have so much empathy for, for every decision that the that any other parents made because it's a tough choice this year. For us, um, my husband and I both can work from home and we are able to do it, so we did. Um, that I feel like that would allow for other kids to have a place in a classroom where there's more space, more social distance, and I, I that was the main sort of driving factor. We could, so we did. Hazel is a first grader at Apple Glen Elementary in Bentonville. Well, I like it, and there's two different apps I use for school, Seesaw and Google Classroom. Right, because, well, we've had some issues with Seesaw this week. It kind of crashed for a little bit. So we had some music and PE and what was the other one? Art. Art. Okay, so you have music and PE and art. And then we had issues, and now we're figuring it out. I think it's going to be a a learning curve. Hazel's virtual classes take place on Google Classroom, and she turns in her assignments using a program called Seesaw. Clapper says the arrangement is a lot more interactive than she thought it would be. It's so wonderful to hear the teacher connecting with every kid and getting to know them even virtually, like their personalities and uh she noticed that Hazel had cast pretty quickly and that she'd broken her arm and she was asking about that. It was really cool that we can do this virtually. 
and Clapper, who runs her own baking business, adds, it's been fun watching her daughter learn. I think my favorite thing this week is getting to hear what they're doing. It's really fun. I'll be making bread and then I hear them talking about, today they were talking about responsibility and taking responsibility for your actions, which I feel like we could all use a refresher on. I don't know anybody who doesn't need help with that, and that was fun to listen to. Plus, if Hazel gets through all her assignments quickly, she can be done with school as early as 1 o'clock. You know, Hazel, for a first grader, Hazel's pretty independent. So um, the first day, I kind of planned on not working much and helping a lot, and it was pretty smooth sailing for us. We, I feel like we were pretty lucky. Our teacher seems to be very tech-savvy, um, and it's capable of like not only um, putting together an easy-to-learn situation for the kids, but then navigating the kids' technical difficulties without a lot of parental intervention, which is very nice. And Clapper says the kids are tech-savvy, too. We sort of deliberately don't use technology a ton with the kids. And we at first, we were like, oh, is that a bad choice? Is she going to be behind? But they pick it up instantly. I mean, instantly. There was one, I think there were a few kids on the call that were helping troubleshoot. We were having trouble with one of the meetings today, and one of the kids hopped on and said, oh, you just need to click on this button. And it was really, really cool. After five days of virtual school, this is how Hazel and her mom summed up the experience so far. How would you, how would you say it went for the first week of school? Good. It's been nice to have her home, have her... Um, like working on fun stuff that I didn't have to orchestrate um, that's very beneficial to her. And here's Jake's take on his first few days of school. Are you looking forward to the rest of the year? No, I didn't even go to school. <laughs> I tricked you with a robot. Uh, with a ro- So you were a robot at school? <laughs> For Ozarks at Large, this is a fully human, not robot, Zuzanna Cytek. Across the state, hundreds of faculty and staff members in public school districts have tested positive for COVID-19 since the start of the school year. If teachers contract the virus, they may need a substitute to take over while they're recovering. In a story that originally aired on September 8th, Ozarks at Large's Antoinette Grajeda found out how the state's largest school district was preparing its substitute teachers to continue working during the pandemic. Bobby Cole has worked in education for nearly four decades and views the pandemic as just one more challenge. Every year in education has its challenges and fun. So, you know, after doing this for now my 36th year, you know, I'm I'm ready. The biggest change for substitute teachers in the Springdale School District is they're being assigned to one building. Sub-coordinator Bobby Cole says in the past, substitute teachers could teach anywhere in the district, though they generally stuck to a handful of buildings. Most of our subs have have this family atmosphere to them, and they like to to be a substitute in a building that they're familiar with. So realistically, even though they could take positions all over the district, they would pretty much uh, narrow themselves down to one or two buildings. So what we've done this year uh, with COVID, um, trying to protect them and the students and, and our faculty, Uh, We've just narrowed it down where we've given them one particular building. Cole has also created online training as another way to protect substitute teachers. They will be given a link to to really just to be able to to watch me live and in recorded color (laughs) and go through the substitute training. And they they have links uh, to the substitute handbook and There's a link also to a substitute PowerPoint so that they can either read it, touch it, or hear me talk about it. In the past, Springdale has had as many as 700-plus substitutes registered in its sub-portal. Right now, we have over 400 active substitutes. Uh, It may sound a little bit down, but what we did is I deactivated all the substitutes that have been in the system before, and we when we sent out our... um, our poll to make sure that, hey, which building do you want to be in? When they answered us back, then we put them back into the system so that we would make sure that we knew exactly where they are. And some of them have answered back and have not worked yet. So we're now making calls and, and finding out, hey, you know, it's been a week and a half. 
uh, see you're not accepting calls or you you haven't taken a job. So are you still interested in working here? And of course, some of them are a little bit scared. We want to see how this is going to go. So that's all right. We, we say, well, we're going to keep you active or we'll deactivate you until you, you're ready to go. Cole says he thinks the district will be fine for now, but notes you never know what the future will bring. It's amazing to me the durability of, of the people and 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 the willingness of some people that are, are are willing to go out there and take care of what needs to be done, especially for our kids. You know, we've got 23,000 students here in the district and we're trying to take care of them as, as best as we can. And a lot of our educators, of course, you know, are, are at that, at the age and have whatever underlying disability that brings them more dangerous to be around COVID. But they are willing to come out and take care of the students. The students become first. One of those educators is substitute teacher Scott Bailey. He's been working in the Springdale School District for 13 years and says he loves working with kids. Bailey says he was given the option to opt out of this year, but didn't because he wasn't worried. The school system here is unbelievable. I knew they would have it ready for us. And uh, and I got to tell you, they've even gone beyond what I thought, thought they they would do. So no, I wasn't worried at all. I just knew it would be different for sure. Some of those differences include temperature checks, sanitizing desks, and wearing masks. Bailey also drives a school bus and says they've added extra runs to minimize the number of students riding the bus at one time. So they're spaced out a lot better. The windows are all down, uh, barring it's not raining, of course, but the windows are all down. There's no air conditioner that can be ran. If we're driving sports teams, we're taking extra buses to, for spacing issues, as well as the windows down, no air conditioner, too. So uh, all the, all the uh, teachers, coaches, everybody are masked up. I, I hardly see any faces. It's just basically everybody's masked all the time. Bailey says it's been a smooth transition and everything's business as usual. He says having enough subs can be a problem, and it may be in the future, but he has faith they'll figure it out. It is an issue sometimes. Uh, like, uh, I've had to fill in uh, for uh, multiple teachers during the day. I mean, it's just crazy sometimes, but that that's something we can deal with, and it's, it's nothing new. I mean, they will be all right. Subcoordinator Bobby Cole shares his optimism that they'll be able to handle the challenges of the school year. I'm optimistic in the fact that we're going to be in school uh, for the year. Uh, even now, if there's if we need some subs in different buildings, we're calling to try to make sure that they've got enough building or enough subs to, to cover each other in those buildings. And yeah, we've got as many as as I said, 33 subs in one building. And we try to keep it somewhere around eight or nine subs in these smaller buildings, especially when they only have about 25 or 30 teachers in the whole building. And my, my biggest goal is to try to work as many people as they want to work and, and put them in the building that they want to be in. Cole says he's trying to hire as many new subs as he can. Applicants must be at least 21 years old, have a high school diploma or GED, and pass a background check. More information about applying is available on the Springdale School District's website, estelle.org. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Antoinette Grajeda. Parents haven't had it easy either. Some who work had no choice but to send their children back to in-person learning. Others felt a return to some sort of sense of normalcy was essential to their children's well-being. Some chose virtual or hybrid learning under school district supervision. And as Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich tells us in a story that originally aired on September 22nd, a growing number of parents have assembled virtual home campus learning pods. Nine children enrolled in a virtual learning pod are quietly studying here inside a leased classroom on Mount Sequoia in Fayetteville. Mom, Stephanie Jones, who works full-time as a marketing manager and husband, Tripp, have two children in the pod five-year-old Cricket, who was enrolled at Montessori Pre-K, and eight-year-old Tatum, who was attending Root Elementary in Fayetteville before the pandemic. We're kind of uh, going through this pandemic where um, whoever, whichever parent is the most nervous, we kind of go with their gut feeling. 
But rather than return their children to traditional school, the Joneses opted to join forces with a few other parents in Fayetteville to form a small off-campus virtual learning pod. Throughout the pandemic, both me and my husband worked full-time. Um, and while I work remotely, it's not feasible or possible for me to divide my time between them and school and making sure that they get the appropriate attention they need. So virtual, completely virtual, just was not an option for us. Um, and the closer we got to the deadline for making a decision on whether to send them back to school in person, I just didn't feel good about it. So we uh, we were hanging out with our social pod, which is a small, small group of friends, and um, one of them brought it up, and I was like, where do I sign up? Get me in that. Get me in. That's what we need to do. The hired instructor, who's financially compensated by the parents and not the district, declined to be interviewed for this report, but Joan says she helped organize the learning pod and facilitates public school-tethered virtual learning. Her class includes four kindergarten students, a first grader, a second grader, and three third graders. Speaking remotely with mom by phone, eight-year-old Tatum Jones says she likes her pod. All my friends are there, and... Um... I really like being out of the house. When a global pandemic was declared and the city of Fayetteville was shut down last March, Tatum and her sister Cricket were sequestered at what educators now call their virtual home campus. But now the girls are dropped off for school every day at 745 for virtual learning pod class. Most of the students have their first Zoom of the day at 815-ish. Um, where they connect with their public school teacher and um, walk through what they're going to be doing for the day, you know, what they need to catch up on. Um, and then they just start working through the curriculum. And they all have, my, my oldest daughter has five Zooms every day. The children who are subject to rigorous public school testing study the basics, literacy, math, and science, with breaks for a recess and lunch. They take occasional hikes on the center's grounds to play by the koi pond and go to the swing sets if no other children are using them. And then they do their afternoon uh, curriculum also, which in, in my children's case is usually the um, enrichment courses like PE, music, art, um, and then I pick them up around 3.30 every day. The children practice lots of hand washing and masks have to be worn inside and out, Joan says, if in close proximity to others. One of my best friends has her children in a different pod and they are also enjoying it. They're, it just gives you a peace of mind, especially, you know, we get at least once daily emails from the public school district saying uh, this number of students has tested positive, this teacher has tested positive, and I, every time I read one of those emails, I am so thankful. And it's not that it couldn't happen, but I am so thankful that I don't constantly have to worry, and I know they feel the same way. Fayetteville Public School Daily publishes an online district COVID-19 dashboard for students, parents, faculty, and staff to monitor. Stephanie Jones believes the learning pod is a safe alternative. I mean, my children like to be at school, and they like to know their teachers and um, be around other children, and this gives them the opportunity to have that. Learning pods are so new that no tally exists of just how many operate in Fayetteville, let alone northwest Arkansas in the state. An online search reveals one large learning pod in Little Rock, but not much else. Jason Edwards, principal of Root Elementary in Fayetteville, where Cricket and Tatum would typically be attending class, says of 414 students enrolled, 40% are in traditional classrooms, 40% are virtually learning at home, and 20% are hybrid. Edward says he's become aware that certain families are forming virtual learning groups. Our hybrid and our virtual students, uh, virtual meets, uh, 
with their teachers uh, every day, uh, Monday through Thursday, and then also some on Friday are asynchronous days for virtual. And the teacher guides those students through um, direct instruction through Zoom um, each day and then have Google assignments that they are able to complete to turn in. And then hybrid is a students come two days a week on campus, and then they have three days mostly of asynchronous learning that the teacher uh, gives lessons to to keep uh, students um, continued learning on the three days that they're not here on campus. So those are the learning options that we have, and then we have our five-day traditional, which is traditional. They're here five days just like we have in the past. Uh, I feel like that we've got a good plan in place now and that students are able to learn um, through those three modes, and parents had a choice. Edward says he's become aware that certain families are forming virtual home campus learning groups. As far as learning pods, um, I know that we do have some families that have groups of students who work together on those virtual days. Some, some parents have partnered up and may have a tutor or somebody in a, a learning pod, but that's nothing that we um, oversee. We queried Fayetteville Public Schools Public Information Officer to learn if learning pods are regulated by the district. Alan Wilborn responded via email saying all students enrolled in virtual home campus learning remain connected to their teachers, which is the case for pod learners as well. But the district provides no oversight for learning pods, leaving that to parents. Chris Spudo is principal at Leverett Elementary. Also in Fayetteville, of 300 or so students enrolled, she says, half attend in person and half off campus. Everybody's just glad to be back. That's, that's what's out on our marquee right now. We're just so glad to be back together. Um, it's, it's been a great start. I mean, I, I wish we had everybody here, but, um, you know, that's just the way it goes right now. Spudo says among her virtual home campus learners, certain groups are also forming you know, on Monday, they'll all be at a certain house, and on Tuesday, they'll all be at the next parent's house, and on Wednesday, they'll all be at the next parent's house, and so on. And so that's one setup that I have heard parents say is working for them so that they can keep their kids virtual um, but still, you know, not miss five days of work. Maybe they only miss one, you know, or two a week so that they can work virtually from home, maybe one or two days a week, and then be on site at their at their work for at their workplace um, the rest of the week. And so I know we have that going on with a maybe like ten families. One group she's aware of has hired a retired teacher. Principal Spudo admitted she's never heard the term learning pod. Oh, I hadn't given a name to it, but I knew and it, it is something that I hear, you know, and read on like social media that people are doing this across the nation. An online article published by School Choice Week, which refers to learning pods as pandemic pods, says YMCA's, child care facilities, and even museums are offering virtual learning pod space. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. This pandemic has also led to an increase in food insecurity. Many children across the country depend on their schools for breakfast and lunch, which is why the U.S. Department of Agriculture issued a waiver to help schools continue feeding kids through the end of the year. Ozarks at Large's Antoinette Grajeda has this report from September 23rd. The USDA's Food and Nutrition Service is extending a suite of nationwide waivers for the Summer Food Service Program and Seamless Summer Option through the end of 2020 or until funding runs out. This includes allowing meals to be served in all areas and at no cost, permitting meals to be served outside of typically required group settings and mealtimes, waiving meal pattern requirements as necessary, and allowing parents and guardians to pick up meals for their children. Ali Morachek, Director of Child Nutrition for Fayetteville Public Schools, says this is just the latest in a series of waivers that have come down since March. The most recent waiver is for us to continue our seamless summer program, so our summer program that we normally offer through the school year, uh, which extends our free meals to anyone birth to 18 years of age, whether they're affiliated with Fayetteville Public Schools, whether they live in Fayetteville, 
anyone can come uh, get a free meal from us. FPS is offering the meals through its five-day meal pack program. We do ask for a pre-order, but um, it's been going very well uh, so far. And so families affiliated with Fayetteville Public Schools can use our existing My School Bucks, the pre-order. And then community members not affiliated with Fayetteville Public Schools, they'll just call our office and we'll add them to the list every week. It's, it's pretty simple. We just ask if they would like milk with their meal and what time they'd like to pick it up. We've added an evening pickup time. So, um, and it's easy, easy as that. Through the program, the district can provide five breakfasts and five lunches for a total of 10 meals per child per week. Because it's open to any child, Morachek says a parent who has one student enrolled in school and perhaps a two-year-old at home can also get meals for the two-year-old through this initiative. The district is not responsible for raising any additional funding for the extra meals. They just claim the meals and receive federal reimbursement. Morachek says opting into the new waiver is a win-win situation. It's really great for our program to opt into that because we're feeding more kids. That brings more reimbursement into my program and our district. So we're meeting needs and funding our program. According to a press release from the USDA, the department has been asked to fund the initiative through the entire school year, but says, quote, we are obligated to not spend more than is appropriated by Congress, end quote. The summer waiver extensions are based on current data estimations. Over six months, partners across the country have supported nearly 80,000 sites, handing out meals at a higher reimbursement rate than the traditional school year program. Ali Morachek, Director of Child Nutrition for Fayetteville Public Schools, says her district has been able to serve thousands of meals since schools first closed in the spring. Since the, the shutdown of Fayetteville Public Schools on uh, March 16th through the beginning of August, so through our summer program, we have served over 165,000 meals um, on 109 serving days. So, and it was the largest summer program we've ever had. I mean, we served about three times what we normally do. So I, I do think the need is there and probably increasing um, because it will take some time for our communities to recover. So we're happy to, to be there. Morachek says they're still finalizing numbers for how many students are qualified for free and reduced lunches for the school year. At the end of last year, FPS was at about 38%. Three weeks into the new school year, that number is already at 31%, and she expects it to go up. The need has increased. Um, we're seeing families that, you know, uh, we kind of know our families, you know, we, we get to know them in the, the serving lines and everything. And so we've had new uh, families call and, you know, they'll call or they'll come to the site and they'll just, you know, they're very honest. They're like, I've never done this before. How do I send, how do I apply for meal benefits? How do I order these meal packs? Now I'm here. What do I do? And we're very happy to educate them on the process. I mean, it's kind of nice to have conversations on the phone and explain the whole process and the program because it can be sometimes a complicated um, program, but we're here to simplify and, you know, increase access to these things. More information about enrolling in the Free Meals program is available by visiting FAYAR.net or by calling 479-684-5091. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Antoinette Grajeda. For the final story of this episode of The New Classroom, we head to the University of Arkansas campus because college students and educators have also been feeling the effects of this pandemic. One group has turned it into a learning opportunity. It starts with Springdale resident, journalist, and small business owner Misty Orpin, who started tracking COVID-19 data in March before launching a website called ArkansasCovid.com, where for five months she shared her analysis of state data with the public. In September, Orpin handed those reins over to the University of Arkansas School of Journalism and Strategic Media. To learn more about the transition, we once again go to Antoinette Grajeda who spoke with Orpin, Professor Rob Wells, and U of A senior Mary Hannigan. In the interview, which originally aired on September 2nd, Orpin said she first connected with the journalism school back in May. So Rob reached out and offered me Mary as an intern to help me with demographics. And uh, that internship was funded through a couple of different organizations, but it was under Arkansas Soul, which um, Rob can talk about better than I can. But I had Mary all summer and she was absolutely incredible and helped stay on top of all the demographic data, which as we know has been so key with this pandemic because 
different populations have been impacted so disproportionately. Um, and it was such a wonderful experience um, as I approached the fall and my kids going back to school, I knew that it wasn't sustainable for me to continue what I was doing at the same level. And so taking that partnership to the next level and asking Rob and his wonderful team to take it on a full time just seemed like the natural evolution of the project. And Mary, what is your background in this type of reporting, this type of, you know, working with real-time data, and what did you learn from your experience over the summer? So I only had one experience, honestly, working with data, and that was with um, Dr. Rob Wells in the School of Journalism, and we worked with um, student debt numbers. So this was the first time where I really got to immerse myself in real-time data, and what I learned is that it's really eye-opening, and things can change in one day and you can have one story one day and then it completely turn on its head the next day. Dealing specifically with demographics, were you surprised by what you were finding in the data? The data was surprising. Um, the Marshallese community got really impacted by the coronavirus. So the Pacific Islander numbers were very high in Arkansas. And that was really important to portray because um, not everybody knows that we have that Marshallese community in Northwest Arkansas. And so just informing the people of that demographic, I think, was one of the most important things that I got to do over the summer. And Rob, what sort of role did you play in this? You, you have a, a couple of classes, or is it just one class that sort of works with data in general? And then can you talk a little bit about your, um, the partnership with Arkansas Soul that Misty spoke about? So I teach a, a, a data journalism class now every semester, and that class will get involved with... Uh, a project looking at one specific story. Um, in the spring semester, we looked at um, at homeless uh, data and partnered with an investigative reporting center at the University of Maryland, the Howard Center for Investigative Journalism. So uh, this semester, I really wanted to do something with with Arkansas COVID, and I talked to, to Misty about partnering with my class, and we would produce. Um, graphics and stories and and have them posted on Arkansas COVID after she you know approved them and so forth so that was the uh, that was the plan and then um this you know opportunity came up kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity to tell you the truth to uh, have my students you know operate a a website uh that has uh, nearly 12,000 Twitter followers and a very very respected uh following and uh, so I jumped at it. It's uh, very unusual. It's a, it's a lot of a uh, lot of work. But um, I have six graduate students this semester. All are experienced, like Mary, and have uh, have the basic training down, and are very very excited about getting into this. And where did Arkansas Soul play into all of this? And will that partnership continue, or was that just for the summer? Sure. So Arkansas Soul was created uh, by uh, by Professor Nikita Reed at the School of Journalism, and it's an outreach program to uh, teach media skills to African-American high school students. Uh, she had this uh, really neat program uh, the summer before last where brought in uh, nearly a dozen students from around the state, taught them uh, media skills. And this year, we were going to crank it up even more, and I was working for Nikita as the web editor. And one of the things we wanted to do was a, um, a real-time dashboard with Tableau numbers uh, automatically updating um, data from the Department of Health that focuses on race. And I saw what Misty was doing. It's like, man, that's exactly what I want to do. <laughs> I had to call her up. <laughs> and... Uh, and I called her up. I said, you, you're doing exactly what I wanted to do, but it looks much nicer. <laughs> it has better analysis. And so uh, we saw eye to eye pretty quickly. Arkansas Soul had a little bit of money, so I uh, was able to get some funding from Arkansas Soul. And the Northwest Arkansas Society for Professional Journalists uh, matched the grant. And we're able to give Mary a little bit of funding over the, the summer. So that Arkansas Soul Partnership is part of the um, uh, School of Journalism, and yes, we will still be working with them. So, Misty, when is the official handoff, and do you plan to continue being involved in some smaller way? 
Yeah, well, I'll definitely still be involved. Um, I can't wait to comment as myself on Arkansas COVID posts. And I, I'm excited about that. I still want to be involved. I know I'm going to be talking with Rob's students. Um, so yes, it's very important to me to still have a role uh, in Arkansas COVID. And I believe the handoff is September 7th. Is that our target date? That's the soft launch, and then, then we are running it uh, on the 14th. And so how will the day-to-day -day operations change now that there's a team running it? What will, what will be different? We mentioned a little bit, two different dates there. Will there be a, a time that the website is down, or, or what are we looking at? So uh, hopefully it, it will stay up without a hitch. And um, what is happening now is there's a lot of work uh, on the back end to restructure the workflow um, and to bring in some automation tools. And I have a programmer I'm working with. And so uh, Misty had um, created a workflow that was that worked uh, for her, but to have a team, it needs to be standardized and so forth. So we're doing that. Um, I believe that this new workflow will take out a lot of the manual labor and so I will have full-time, you know, an intern who will be touching the site every day, a graduate intern. And, and it is her job to uh, make sure that uh, the automated data feeds update. And then the class will be contributing every week. And it's uh, part of, we'll have a rotating uh, schedule of duties, but uh, students will be tweeting and uh, doing stories and data visualization. So we'll have three basic things, the tweets, the stories, and the data visualizations, and then hopefully podcasts after that. Mary, will you continue to be involved? And if so, what are you going to be doing? I will be involved. Um, I'm in the data journalism class. And so what I'm really looking forward to is writing the stories. Not that I have time to, um, you know, kind of elaborate on what I've been looking at for the past few months. I'm really excited that I can share with people people stories instead of just number stories now. What is the importance of giving readers that option to have those people stories instead of just the numbers? So when people look at numbers for too long, they just become numbers, when really those numbers have faces and they have names. And so by being able to go out and do the reporting with these particular groups, for instance, maybe someone of the age who's being the most impacted or of the race of the most impacted, um, you can be more personable with the numbers. So now not every number um, doesn't have a name. You know, it's Janice or whoever. And so I'm really excited that I can personify the numbers. Now that there's a team, is there anything in particular that you're looking forward to being able to add to the site or perhaps make more robust because there are more people? There'll be more stories. Um, probably in the next month, we'll be able to have a more reg a regular feed of uh, of posts, and I would like to get um, more uh, podcasts. But we have a very big job of maintaining the response and the relationship with the existing community. Um, I don't really know how Misty did it, but she um, built. Uh, a very, very strong bond with, uh, with thousands of people throughout Arkansas. And for us to maintain those relationships will, will be quite um, an achievement if we can pull it off. So that's, that's my main goal. That's actually one of the things I'm really excited about is I feel like Arkansans have really embraced the platform and trust it and rely on it daily. And so I'm so excited that this team is going to be able to take it so next level. You know, they're going to be able to provide the stories and where I'd sometimes have data and I'd know maybe that something was wonky about it, but I wouldn't have time to run it down, right? And so they're going to have the capability to really full package the site in a way that I never could. And so I think the community is going to get so much more than what they were getting when it was just me and Mary trying to pull it off on our own. And Misty, when we spoke earlier this year, one of the things we discussed was there were certain things that um, 
I think the way in which the state was presenting the data, you were saying you wish they would do it different ways or you wish they would have more details about certain things. Having talked to them about that and having had your own website, have you noticed those those changes have come to fruition or are those still things that you're hoping will happen eventually? Yeah, it's so funny. COVID is such a moving target, right? Because everything changes so quickly. Like, you know, now we have an entirely new way of testing that we didn't have back in May, the antigen testing. And so it's continually adding new layers of data that we need and expect from our leaders. But I will say that over the past few months, they have added since May additional layers. And I think they do continue to try to do better with messaging and get it out in new ways that are engaging to the public and accessible to the public. So yes, I do think that they are making strides and improvements every week in how they present the data. And Arkansas COVID is just kind of here to augment that and provide you know, that real-time response to the needs that uh, Arkansans have that maybe they're not already getting. Are you surprised at how large this project has grown and, and how do you feel about where it's come from when you started it on your own to where it's going now? Yes, I would have never in a million years predicted that it would have gotten this large. I, I mean, if I, if I had gotten 100 Twitter followers in the beginning, I would have just been flabbergasted. So yes, it's it's really outgrown me. Um, I never intended for it to be a full-time job. I always wanted it to be a side project that, you know, I did in my spare time. But to really do it justice, um, because so many people have responded to it, they deserve, they deserve that. And I'm so glad that Rob and his team are going to be able to do that. Is there value in having an outside group of people, in this case, journalism students, working on something like this instead of just leaving it to state health officials or whoever it happens to be? Um, whose job it is to keep up with the data and, and share it? Yeah, I think there is. I think there's value. There's always value in fact checking, right? I think especially with with COVID um, and it's such a controversial topic and we've seen an inherent lack of trust from some groups about how the information is being presented. So even if it's just to reiterate and to say, hey, I checked this math and this checks out, or I, I looked at this data and this makes sense, or I looked at this data and it doesn't make sense. Like, I think that's a super important role. Um, you know, we've had some people via Twitter and uh, on an email ask, like, do you trust this handoff? Do you feel like, because I've been kind of rogue at times and been able to really express some views that may be contrary to official lines. And so I've had people ask me if I trust that the U of A partners are going to be able to continue that. And I just want to reiterate that I, I do think that they will do a great job I don't see any outside pressures coming in on them. Um, Mary has always been very forthright. Rob's always been very forthright. But another thing that I know is so key to this is the community is so vocal and so strong and the community demands accountability. They demand accountability from their leaders. They demand accountability from the journalists. And I know that they're going to demand accountability from Arkansas COVID. So I know if they see it going askew, they will let us know. And so I have absolute faith that it's going to maintain the same level of reporting integrity that it has up to this point and, and better because sometimes I can you know, I could inject more opinion than I know that Rob and Mary will do. Any final thoughts about um, the website and where it's coming, where it's going? I would just add that, you know, student journalism is uh, playing increasingly important role as uh, the media system, the traditional media system has uh, restructured and uh, we've seen closures of a lot of local media outlets. You see student media uh, taking up, you know, very important roles like at Arizona State, the Cronkite News Service, I believe, has the only full-time Washington Bureau for the state of Arizona. Those are student journalists. Uh, the University of Maryland's Capital News Service uh, has three bureaus covering Maryland, and their material is distributed uh, uh, on occasion through uh, the Associated Press. So uh, University of Arkansas students have been, been playing in this league now for a couple semesters. And it's just a super important role as, uh, as the media system evolves. As student journalists can definitely step up and fill uh, a void. 
Well, thank you so much for your time and congratulations on the next phase of the project. Yeah, well, thanks a lot, Antoinette. I really appreciate it. That was Misty Orpin, founder of ArkansasCOVID.com, Rob Wells, assistant professor of journalism at the University of Arkansas, and U of A senior Mary Hannigan. They spoke with Ozarks at Large reporter and producer Antoinette Grajeda. You can hear stories like these every Monday through Friday on Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 p.m. and at 9 a.m. on Sundays. You can also hear stories about how this pandemic has impacted local business owners, essential workers, healthcare providers, artists, and so many other people. And you can stream KUAF 91.3 online at KUAF.com, where you'll find future episodes of the new Classroom podcast and all past episodes of Ozarks at Large. We dedicate this episode to all educators, school staff, students, and parents impacted by the pandemic, but especially Atkins School District Superintendent Jody Jenkins, who died September 29th due to complications from COVID-19, and Suzanne Michael, who was an elementary school teacher from Harrisburg. She passed away on October 1st from complications from COVID-19. I'm Zuzanna Sytek, and the new Classroom Special Reporting Series is supported by the Walton Family Foundation and produced by KUAF 91.3 in beautiful downtown Fayetteville.